John the activist, John the painter, John the, the leader or whatever. I, I, that, that word is always so weird to me because it's not something that I have, but I guess that is what I do in the community. Hello and welcome to Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Mills. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host today, and I am here with John Gasca. And John describes himself as a Latin pop artist. What is a Latin pop artist? Well, after years of just developing my style and not fitting into one box or another, I just kind of came up with the term. I am from Puerto Rico. I have a Latin Caribbean upbringing. I also love styles and incorporate styles like cubism and folk into my work and pop. I have a lot of global influences. I love Aboriginal work, just a lot of patterns from around the world. So, you know, I couldn't say I was this artist or that artist. So I just, I made my own. Can you hear my dogs wrestling? Because I probably should. No, they're good. Okay. <laughs> you're doing a lot of different things right now. What is the most exciting thing you're doing in the moment? The one that I think I'm most excited about, and ironically, I get the least amount of time to work on is I'm working on a series of self-portraits. I've been wanting to explore something a little different. And at first I felt it was a little bit self-indulgent. And then everybody sort of kind of eased my mind. They're like, oh, all the greats have done it, you know? And it's just part of an artist's process sometimes. I guess I got to a point in my life where I'm doing some internal work and I wanted to explore the different facets of who I am. So there will be like the artist, the king, the queen, the femme. You know, I don't have them all fleshed out just yet as part of the work, but I just wanted to sort of take a deeper look inside and look at the different components of myself artistically, but also in just dealing with personal issues. So I'm somewhat familiar with your work. A lot of them are portraits. They're facing forward, looking out at the person who's looking in at them, usually almost with a recognition that they're being looked at. I'm on your website right now, and one of them is waving. It's almost to say, hello, I see you looking at me. Right, right. Are your portraits going to be in that that same style? Are you doing something a little different? I think some will, but I don't think they all will. As a matter of fact, I am working on one now. I just started the sketch. One is covering the face that would normally be looking forward at you. And there are two profiles coming off of the sides. Mm -hmm. So that's different for me. Well, I love the way you said some of them will, but I don't think they all will. Almost as if there was some other influence on you about how you're going to portray yourself than yourself and you don't know it yet so I think I'm constantly influenced I would feel like I would come to a point of where I would feel the work was stale if I wasn't constantly influenced by something or other and constantly growing and I think that is why I do abstract sometimes or like right now I'm doing a little bit of collage because I get to a point where I feel like, okay, I've, I've amassed this body of work and I've said what I wanted to say with it. And then I almost just use the other work to like almost shake off my hands. Or I always think of it like a palate cleanser. 
And then I can sort of recharge and reset and get back to the Latin pop, which is my signature work. And one of the things about the work being instantly recognizable to me is that that was the point when somebody first said that to me was the point when I felt I was doing the right things back in the days when you'd get the art magazines in the mail. And, you know, I would look at the articles and see what was the end thing and tell myself, well, maybe that's what I need to be doing to get recognized. And it wasn't until it probably within the past 10 years where somebody said, whenever I see a Gascot painting, no matter where I am, I know it's you. And at that point, it just sort of clicked. And I was like, no, you are doing what you don't need to try to do this or that because it's the in thing or, you know, the popular thing. And that's when I decided to just build my own sort mm -hmm. of road. I actually started writing stories, but I always drew a lot. I definitely wrote a lot. I knew that I wanted to be something in a creative field, and I feel like I genuinely could have been happy in any field as long as I wasn't sitting behind a desk doing repetitive work. So I went to Fordham University for playwriting and acting. I won a couple of young playwrights competitions, even had a play read at Playwrights Horizon in New York. So I thought that's where I was going. My eyes were on off-Broadway, Broadway. And then I was a makeup artist, beauty makeup artist for a number of years. I was happy doing that. And when we purchased our first home in Northeast Pennsylvania, it was a very remote area, mountains, literally a one-stoplight town called Milford. At that point, there wasn't much of a call for my makeup career. And I took some art classes just to meet people. And we ended up partnering with a friend and opening a gallery. And then while I gallery sat, I would paint. And then eventually my paintings got on the walls. And then eventually tourists from New York mostly would purchase them. And that's how I just started being an artist full time. And I was very fortunate to have the support of my husband, who at times when maybe I wasn't selling so much, you know, I would suggest getting a different job or something and he always was supportive and said, no stick with this stick with this and and because of that I'm a full-time artist and I feel like sometimes I'm still writing just visually you know you are a creative canalis emerging artist from I think 2020 COVID year yes you did this really amazing installation. I did not know that you had a career as a playwright. And now that I do, there's a whole additional level of understanding I have about the installation okay. you did and the storytelling. Well, the installation was called In Their Shoes. It had a carnival feel. This is an idea that I've had for years and years. And during my mentorship with the grant period, I was going the route of doing soft sculptures, like life-size self-sculptures of the women that I paint. And all of a sudden it hit me that I had this idea of doing an interactive sort of carnival statement, social statement installation, but I'd never had the opportunity to do it. And at that moment, I was like, wait a minute, that's what grants are for. They're funding for me to do this presentation. And now it's the time when I should be doing this work that I normally don't make the time to do because as a full-time artist, I have to sell art. So sometimes 
you don't make the time to do something that's just for art's sake, something that might not be purchased, something that, you know, it's just to be experienced and then it's gone. And so I took that opportunity and I focused on carnival cutouts. They're iconic, like they're usually a caveman and a cave lady or a king and a princess or whatever. And, you know, they're very cartoony and you stick your head through them. They have them at tourist traps as well. And you get your picture taken. But what I chose to do was depict things that were going on, such as the George Floyd situation, Black Lives Matter, immigration. And I would depict these sort of stereotypical characters, cut out their faces. And the point was that that was supposed to symbolize putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, no matter what your opinion might be on any given situation. So then came the challenge and then came the meetings that we had to have to protect the work so that people would not misuse the work. And at first, one of the concerns was, you know, should somebody get behind those and get pictures and the pictures get out there? It's true. Like on the internet, things lose their context. And I could have very easily been like the next terrible person who created this kind of joke thing and out of a bad situation, which was not at all the intent. The intent was to start conversations. That's usually the intent of most of my work is to start conversations. And so we came with a way to protect the work, which was nobody could access the work. And I think it was you who said, just viewing the work, you already know what those pieces are supposed to be. And you've, you've already gotten the point and interacted with it. You don't have to have a physical access. I also wanted this feel of like a carnival that came through and just left all its litter behind. So we had discarded carnival tickets and deflating balloons at different states of inflation, like they would be deflating throughout the exhibition. And I, I, I got a lot of great response. I, people felt it was really impactful and I was really happy with it. I think that I want to point out that in the tableau is the three officers associated with George Floyd, including the officer who has his knee on George Floyd's neck and George Floyd. And you could insert your face into any of those as well as other people in the tableau representing police officers or immigration or activists. And for me, it, it spoke very definitively to complicity, to making a choice, to accepting the, you know, the horror of that tragedy. And I'm very moved that lately when I hear people talking about George Floyd, they talk about the murder of George Floyd, become a shared acceptance and awareness from a, a lot of people that that's what was experienced, that George Floyd was murdered in front of many people who were present and then in the whole world through video. At the time that you installed the installation, I think that had not gone through the court system. And there was almost still a debate about responsibility and, and all of those things were still open for discussion. And your artwork kind of pinpointed that they were not open for discussion. And part of why I chose the carnival theme too is that these tragedies and situations immediately become a spectacle in the media. You know, my work is always about representation and inclusivity and everybody being seen. 
And I, I just really believe that there's an importance and I will always speak out on those issues, not only on behalf of things that affect me personally, but that affect others, because I truly believe that none of these things don't affect us all as a whole. A lot of people who are privileged to sit in safety in their homes feel like these things don't touch me. So why should I bother to do or speak about these things? And if you know about something that's wrong and you don't speak on it, you're part of the problem. We become complacent in what we have, what rights we have, and before our very eyes, like we're seeing that they can just be taken away at any given moment. That's part of what my concept is for this other project, the diversity game. I'm developing this game, this life-size board game, which is sort of like a like a shoots and ladders. And I'm still developing, we've put out a couple of versions so far. We did one for kids during Pride, which was a lot simpler, more about teaching them about the colors and the rainbow flag. But my main concept for it is for it to almost be a tool that can be used as almost like community diversity training or corporate or whatever it be, workplace, where you create your own game piece. So that's where you get to be artful and create. But when you play the game and you roll the dice, maybe you land on a spot that says something to the likes of, you know, you hired a bilingual minority. Now you have a whole new customer base move forward whatever amount of spots. Or you send home a student for wearing dreadlocks, come back a certain amount of spots. And the, the point of it is, once it's fully developed, is for it to just ultimately show that diversity and inclusion matters and it does affect everybody and it makes communities stronger. But when you discriminate or don't include everybody, it's like you create cracks in a dam. And that is from the NEA grant, right? Yes. So just in case somebody might not know, Creative Pinellas did apply to the NEA for a grant and received a $500,000 grant to subgrant to artists and arts organizations who had ideas for artists, ideas that would take them out into the community, engage with the community around art and making art accessible. And then for arts organizations, for operations, and you you applied and you received the grant for the game. Yes, I did. I was very happy to do that. There's other things you do also around the issues of diversity and democracy. I'm looking at your mural where it has that same idea of a person inserting themselves into the artwork, and this is to encourage voting. Yes, this was for the last election, and I was commissioned by the League of Women Voters of the St. Pete area to create a mural. It's called Diversity and Democracy. Initially, it was mainly supposed to be aimed at the LGBTQ plus community, but I wanted really all of the community to see themselves in it. And because that's part of my whole thing, that everybody should be able to see themselves in art, because I strongly believe when a little kid of color or girl goes into a museum, they should be able to find themselves. And, And we're seeing that in a better way now. But, you know, art is not just Rubenesque, long-haired ladies frolicking in the woods. And that's sort of like the image of art that I first encountered. So I wanted to have like a cast of characters in this mural, but obviously I can't paint everybody or it would be a never-ending mural. So <laughs> I created a spot 
where you could insert yourself and be a part of the mural. And it has like a, a cartoon speech bubble that says, I vote. And over it, we put, we are St. Pete. And that was a lot of fun. I brought in James Hartzell, who's a fellow artist to help me with the lettering because he does a lot of that. And I believe that whenever you're creating something, if there's a component that's not your strong suit, it's not cheating to bring in somebody whose specialty that is, as long as you compensate them, of course. And I know lettering is not my thing. So I wanted this to be the best mural it could. So I brought in his assistance with that. And his name is right alongside mine on the mural. You know, that's one thing I love about Pinellas County artists, the collaborative aspect and the recognition and the lifting each other up. And I guess it's this idea that there is enough for everybody, you know, so Absolutely. instead of And when the big debate, whenever we bring in an international artist or something to create something in St. Pete, there comes up the whole debate of why wasn't it a local? And I always stand on the side that, first of all, as far as tourism goes, which we are an art tourist destination, you have to have a mix. But most importantly, I feel like, well, if you're going to say that only locals should create here, then you're also saying that we shouldn't be able to create elsewhere. I feel if we want international or national opportunities, we also have to offer them. My last place of residence was the DC area, but I was in Springfield, Virginia, which is 15 minutes outside. And it's suburban. It's not really a mural scene. So especially the scale of and the amount of murals moving here really took me back. It was almost like a challenge to myself that I wanted to do a mural. The first one I did, it's commercial, but I did the mural on their roof of punkies in St. Pete. And for my very first mural, not only was it off the ground, it was on metal, it was slanted, and it was corrugated. And Derek Donnelly was so awesome. He came out, he taught me how to work a scissor lift. Then I just said, I'm just going to attack this. I'm going to make it work. And it, it came out great. It's still there. I thought of myself as like the new old guy in the mural scene because so many of them are younger than I am. And my biggest one that I did is the Pilot Bank one, which is a three-story building. And Derek assisted me with that one. It was my design. I just, they're so physically draining like I never knew like you have to hydrate correctly you have to eat I almost passed out once because of the heat you know you're up there on lifts and ladders and I'm like you know if I fall from here I'm not bouncing back the way some of these other guys are so to be honest while I love doing the big murals I would be perfectly happy to be the little mural guy of St. Pete like <laughs> I, I love a good 10 by 10 I don't do as many as other people because people have to want my style. Every now and then people will see like I'll do like a live model drawing session and people will still be like, oh my God, you did that? Well, yeah, I can do that. I just, that's not how I want to express what I have to say. I manage the studios at 5663, and that's 5663 Park Boulevard in Pinellas Park. 
I was the first artist ever in that building. The city had done something called a Better Block event where they had these storage containers where artists and merchants could turn them into little shops or galleries for the weekend. And they had sort of a festival. They were testing the waters of using creativity to revitalize an area. And I had met the head of the CRA. She let me know that this suite of offices was going to be turned into art studios subsidized by the city. And that's the city of Pinellas Park, right? City of Pinellas Park, correct. As part of the community redevelopment agency to revitalize that area with artists. So they had subsidized studios, which are probably the lowest rate going. They're about a dollar square foot. So I immediately said yes, because I was looking for a studio. So through time, you know, being the first one there, I just ended up taking on a lot of responsibilities and stuff. And so I'm, I'm manager and curator for the building. And so I bring any artist concerns to the city. I curate the art that we show. I plan events. I'm the liaison between the artists and the city. And then Derek Donnelly, who lives a couple of doors down in a live work unit, has a studio and gallery and lives upstairs. He's also a leader in that community. So we're very much a collective. There's also Vince Pompey, who creates sculptures that have found objects. He's famous for his clocks that are made out of silverware. He was another one who was one of the people who started things happening at the Arts Village. We have a really great thing going because what brings people to Pinellas Park? Well, they don't have the beach. They don't have downtown. So the arts is very valuable. Last year, I organized the first ever Pride Festival in the city of Pinellas mm -hmm. Park. And this year we had the second one. And part of what I told city council, who's very, very supportive of us, was the face of your city is changing and different people are coming here now. You had thousands of people coming to the Pride oh, Festival yeah. mm -hmm. and you had a yeah. lot of art associated with it. So it's Pride at the Village. They at first were like, well, do you want to go to England Brothers Park? It's bigger. It's this. And I'm like, no, I don't want all these artists to have to pack up, set up a tent to then try to convince people to come back to see their studios on a whole other day. I want people to be here in the village celebrating diversity. We're trying to do a very unique, more quaint, if you will, community pride event and art-based. There's still that element of makers and creatives at the mm -hmm. heart of it. You actually have an organization called Diversity Arts. It's a nonprofit. It's open to everybody, but our main focus is underserved youth, and that would be LGBTQ youth, communities of color, girls, low income. But again, we're open to everybody because I believe there's a big importance in maybe children of privilege creating alongside children of not so much privilege and learning that there's not difference between them when they work side by side. We do free workshops for youth. Almost monthly, we have professional artists lead them different themes and mediums every time so that they're exposed to different points of view. We have adult socials as well, like make and takes. So we do like an LGBTQ social, allies are welcome, where it's almost like an alternative to going to a bar as a social activity. You know, you go to an art studio, 
and you can meet new people, you can mingle, network, and you make something and you take it home. We hold clothing and food drives, usually one of each a year. We operate out of the studios and we love doing what we do in the community. What made you want to also do a nonprofit organization? In 2016, post-election, my husband and I happened to receive anonymous hate mail from a neighbor. They wanted us to be quiet. So I'm the opposite. I let every news organization know. And through that, we received a lot of online community support. And I wanted to have a moment to just sort of be able to shake these people's hands and say, thank you. You got our backs. We got your back. And we had a meet and greet at the house. And my initial reaction was I'm painting the house rainbow Mm -hmm. just because this neighbor. And then my husband talked me down to the garage door. And then, so these neighbors wanted to help paint it. And then I decided, well, maybe we'll create an art piece that can be auctioned and donated to. And then eventually I just said, no, you know what? What I want to do is work with the youth to hopefully equip them with the freedom of self-expression and confidence in who they are, no matter who they are, to be able to handle a situation like this when and if it happens to them later in life. Or earlier in life, because kids are coming out earlier in life now and they face school bullying and everything. So I was able to deal with this because I had the self-confidence in who I am. So I want to instill that in other people earlier on. And that's how we decided to do. At first, I started doing the workshops and everything was out of pocket. And eventually I was like, well, maybe I should start a nonprofit so I can take donations to fund the programming because there's only so much you can do by yourself. You know, I don't want to teach all the workshops myself because that's limiting to the kids. And I also don't want to ask other artists to do it for free. So that's how I decided to turn it into a nonprofit so that we could raise funds to do that. At the very beginning of the conversation, we were talking about your different self-portraits. And there's all these different facets of who you are, multiple portraits of you in all these different aspects of what you do and how you approach life in the world. And that's that's kind of what I have going around in my head. So John the activist, John the painter, John the, you know, the leader or whatever. I, I, that, that word is always so weird to me because it's not something that I have, but I accept it very proudly. It just always sounds weird, but I guess that is what I do in the community. John Gascott, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. This has been a delightful conversation. Can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you very much. Me too. Thank you. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.